It is. User error. User error. All right. Matthew chapter 24. There's only 28 chapters, so we wanted to figure out what's next. <laughs> Mark is next. <laughs> you already figured it out, huh? Somebody is looking ahead. <laughs> Mark will not be next. I will tell you that. Um, let's just remind you where we are. Two weeks ago, we started Matthew 24. We're going to finish that chapter and be the very first part of Matthew 25. Just to remind you, Matthew is um, it's a gospel, which means it's kind of this kind of like a biography written by Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples. It's written to the Jewish audience primarily, not necessarily the Jewish people, as it, uh, it, it casts them in a pretty negative light, but a Jewish audience, so Jewish people who are converting to Christianity and wanting to know, how do I reconcile the fact that I'm a Jew and now I'm a Christian? And he organized this big explanation into five major sections. Uh, and the five sections basically tell us that Jesus is the king the Jewish religion has always been looking for. He's the king. He's the one you've been waiting for. The problem is, as those sections unfold, Judaism, by and large, rejected their king. If we were in John, John said, he came into his own and his own received him not. Matthew is really the story of how his own received him not. When you get to the fifth section, the final big section of Matthew, uh, that conflict, his, the king and his people, they're in full-on conflict, and it ends with Jesus' final sermon called, uh, sometimes you've heard, maybe you've heard the Olivet Discourse or the Sermon on the Mount of Olives. Uh, this is it. And Jesus says in chapter 23 to Israel, because you've rejected me, I'm rejecting you. And he says, your house is, laid to, is left to you desolate. You have been rejected by me because you have rejected me. Um, and that's not a good thing because rejection of Jesus comes with stiff penalties. The problem is, though, Jesus' followers look around and they say, this house doesn't look so desolate. And that's what we talked about a couple weeks ago. He said, it looks like you say you're the king, and you say that you have judged our enemies, but it looks like our enemies are still winning. Their temple looks pretty nice. Remember, Jesus says, I'm, foxes have holes and birds have nests. I don't have a place to lay my head. His enemies, on the other hand, have one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I mean, this is, they're big time. And so Jesus goes into what we looked at in the beginning of chapter 24 and says, Trust me, I'm going to put an end to all evil, all rejection. And we looked at the end times, really, the coming of the day of the Lord. And really that was meant to be the first part of this, is this incredibly hopeful thing. And, and I felt it, especially two weeks ago, and it's been continuing. Our church, I feel like, has been punched in the gut over some of the hard stuff we're walking through. And that passage reminded me, Jesus isn't done. He's coming back. This suffering isn't the end of the story. 
And there was this sense of great, great hope. The king is returning. He's promised it. He says, look, heaven and earth might pass away, but my words will never pass away. You can take it to the bank. I am coming back. And so that's great news. But it's also scary news. And so the passage we're going to look at today, it says, when when the Lord returns, it will surprise us all. And there will some people who will fare well, but there will some there will be some people that will not fare well when his return comes. That we should now, knowing that this surprise is coming, there should be this sense of fear that causes us to be ready now, to act right now. We don't want to wait for the surprise and try to get ready then. Then it's too late. In fact, if Uh, if I could give a title to this whole passage, be ready to be surprised. There's a surprise coming. We're not going to know when Jesus will come back, but we can be ready for it now. Be ready for this coming surprise. Because being ready will make absolutely all the difference. Let's, Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 24, start in verse 36. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father only. Because as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying, giving in marriage, until the day, of no- until the day that Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. So this is the way that the coming of the Son of Man will be. So then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know what day the Lord is coming. But know this, if a homeowner had known what time the thief was coming... He would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you also must be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and sensible slave, whom his master has put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? It's the slave whose master finds him working when he comes. That's the slave that will be rewarded. I assure you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that wicked slave says in his heart, my master is delayed, and he starts to beat his fellow slaves, and he eats and drinks with drunkards, that slave's master will come on a day he does not expect, and in an hour he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The kingdom of heaven, we're in 25 now. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were sensible. When the foolish ones took their lamps, they didn't take olive oil with them. But the sensible ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. Since the groom was delayed, they, uh, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the middle of the night, there was a shout, Here's the groom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins got up, trimmed their lamps, but the foolish ones said to the sensible ones, Give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. 
The sensible ones answered, no, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell and buy oil for yourself. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived, and then those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the rest of them came also and said, Master, Master, open up for us. But he replied, I assure you, I do not know you. Therefore, be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask for your wisdom that as we study this day of the Lord, the return in which you will come back to us and make all things right, we pray, we pray that you will give us the wisdom not to treat this flippantly, but to be people who are sensible, ready, prepared, and alert, who live lives now that are wise in light of the fact that you are coming soon. And I pray this in your name. Amen. I just want to walk right through it. It's actually not an incredibly difficult passage. There's a couple things that I think may be a little tricky, but for the most part, there's this obvious thing going on. Jesus is coming back, and you and I better be ready. Right? He's coming back. He says in verse 36, now that day and that hour, what day and hour is the same one we talked about two weeks ago, the day in which Christ returns. He vanquishes evil. He sets up his kingdom. The day in which Christ makes all things right, that's coming. And he says, but the day, that day, he says nobody knows what day that actually is. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son except the Father only. The big point here, and we can tell this from reading the whole passage, is that you and I don't know, right? You and I don't know when it's coming. The part that gets a little tricky is Jesus says, I don't even know, right? That's the part that we, well, wait a second, but Jesus is God. How does God not know something, right? And, and I'll just be frank with you. When we start to talk about the Trinity, my mind gets a little bit blown here, right? Because in some... In seminary, here's what you learn. God the Father is God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. God is not Jesus. Jesus is not God the Father. Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not God, and that's the answer. And I'm like, what? Well, I don't understand how that works, but that's at least if you, get, if you put that answer down, you get the answer right, whether you understand it or not. I'm, I'm okay knowing that God's bigger than I can wrap my head around. Um, I will tell you, I'll try to help us wrap our heads around it a little bit. Basically, what I think is happening is that Jesus doesn't know things that the Father knows because he has become man. And in becoming man, he's limiting himself. Let me read to you, this is what John Calvin says, and I'll come back and try to give an illustration that will make it more clear. John Calvin said, for, and I'll be honest, he wrote this in the 1500s, so it's, it's a little difficult, but I think he's right. For we know that in Christ the two natures are united into one person in such a manner that each retained its own properties. 
And more especially, the divine nature was in a state of repose and did not exert did not at all exert itself whenever it was necessary that the human nature should act separately according to what was peculiar to itself in the discharging of the office of mediator. There would be no impropriety, therefore, in saying that Christ, who knew all things, right? John tells us Christ knows all things, is ignorant of something in respect of his perception as a man. For otherwise, he could not have been liable to grief and anxiety without limiting his infinite knowledge, he says, he could not have been like us, right? So when Jesus says, I, eternal God, am going to take on flesh and become human, I am going to accept limitations. And apparently, this limitation of knowledge is one of those limitations. The for me, I'll give you an illustration that I thought was helpful. It's not perfect, but I think it's, it was helpful to me. If it is to you, then good. If not, just try to forget it. <laughs> but um, I, I compare it to kind of a three-legged race. Right? So imagine if you watch the Olympics, you know who Usain Bolt is, world's fastest man, and he's won gold medals for, is it three Olympics in a row he's been winning? I mean, crazy fast person. Easily the fastest man in the world. Imagine he enters himself into a three-legged race with me, who is not fast at all, right? Now, when he does that, when he straps his leg to my leg, he does not cease to be the world's fastest man, but he does take on the limitations of the person he has strapped himself to. Him and I are not going to win the Olympics, not because he's not fast, but because he's strapped himself to a guy who is increasingly out of shape, never was fast to begin with, and is just going downhill every day. That is the best I can understand of what Jesus did. When Jesus became man, he did not stop being God. In fact, he was still 100% Jesus God. But he said, in order to be man, I will strap myself to flesh and blood and accept the limitations that come with that. And the limitation that comes with that, at least one of those, is that I don't know at least something that is happening in the future. Right? Jesus says, when I became man, I said, I don't know all the things in the future, because if I did, I wouldn't be man. And really, that brings us back to the whole point here, is it is intrinsic to our nature that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, right? The, the central thing Jesus is trying to get across here is you're ignorant, and you need to admit it. There's something you don't know, and you need to own up to it. There's people who claim to know, right? There's people who claim to say, I know what's happening. In the f- I know when Jesus will return. And in essence, they're saying, I'm smarter than Jesus. I know something that even God, when he became man, didn't know. I'll read Calvin again. Calvin said, surely that man must be singularly mad. Who would hesitate to submit to the ignorance, which even the Son of God himself did not hesitate to endure on our account? Right? So if if God would say, in order to be like you, I had to become ignorant, what kind of arrogant person would say, well, I'm not quite that ignorant? 
Calvin calls that person mad. I say if you hear someone who says, I know the day and time that Jesus is coming back, put your fingers in your ears and walk away. Because they're claiming to know something that Christ himself said, you cannot know this. And that's the point here. Christ wants us to own up to the fact that we don't know when he's coming, but therefore we need to live ready. The next few uh, examples, there's really three examples, are just proving this thing, that when Jesus comes back, we're not going to know it. It's going to come as a surprise. He says it's going to be like the people in Noah's day. Right? And in Noah's day, God told Noah, hey, at some point I'm sending a flood. But they went on with business as normal, eating and drinking. They were marrying, giving in marriage. In fact, everybody lived completely normally until one day the floods dropped from the heavens and water rose from the ground and all wickedness was wiped off through the flood of judgment. Up until that point, it was, it was a normal day. And it seems like for Noah it was a normal day. But Noah was ready. He had already built a boat. Same thing. The next two stories, there's going to be two men doing exactly what normal guys do. They're going to be out working in the field. One of those, the difference isn't that one's going to know what's coming and the other isn't. They both are going to be going about their day just like normal, but one will be ready and the other one won't. One will be taken and one will be left. Same with two women grinding their flour, just like an absolutely normal day. Nothing special about this day. Heard one guy say, the only remarkable thing about this day is how unremarkable it appeared until one was taken and the other was left. You do not know when it's coming. So, he says, because you don't know, therefore, be alert. Right? Because you don't know, be ready. Right? This is the same principle by which we buy insurance. You don't know the day that you're going to get it, but, but be ready because there's going to be a day when you'll need it. Don't wait until that day. Be ready now because you don't know when it's coming. He says it in 42, be alert. He says it again in 44, this is why you must be ready. Right? If the homeowner knew the day that the thief was coming, he would have been sitting there with his gun ready. The guy wouldn't have got in. But you don't. You don't know when the thief is coming. So be ready now because you don't know. Be ready. Be alert. So why? Why is it such a big deal? And this is where I think the two scary things are. He gives me two parables. gives us two parables. He says, this is why you need to be ready because if you're not the consequences are scary. The first parable, he talks about this slave. Uh, maybe two slaves, maybe one slave who's either the wise and sensible slave or the foolish and wicked slave. Both slaves, or if it's the same guy, they have the same job. They're given the same task. They're put in charge of this household. They're told to feed all the other slaves, take care of them. You're responsible to take care of my business while I'm gone. The first slave gets to work. He's sensible. He doesn't know when the master's coming back, but he works diligently day in and day out so that when the master comes back, he sees, I was doing what you asked. And the master comes back and sees the wise slave and rewards him, gives him more responsibility, more glory, because you were ready. You were ready for me to come back. But there's another guy, a 
foolish guy, foolish slave, and what he does is he starts to get lazy. He starts to think, it's been a long time since the master's been gone. He hasn't, didn't come back yesterday. He hasn't come back today. He's probably not coming back tomorrow. And so he begins to shirk his responsibility. He begins to not take care of the, of the other slaves he was put in charge of. In fact, he becomes wicked and cruel to them, thinking that there's never going to be a judgment day. But that's not true. When he's least aware, when he is least ready, the master comes back and says, what are you doing? The exact opposite of what I told you to do. And for that reason, it says he is cut into pieces. He's put into the place where the hypocrites are. And he is thrown into the place where there is a weeping and gnashing of teeth. He started thinking, because he hasn't come yet, he's probably not going to come now. And that made him lazy. That made him diso- that gave him license to be disobedient. It made him a foolish, foolish slave. As I've tried to wrestle with what exactly is Jesus saying here, I think Jesus is saying here that we need to have a right dose of fear of being caught. The fact that you and I don't know when Jesus is coming back means that I should be afraid of doing something now that I don't want to be caught doing when Jesus comes back. I want to be afraid of living in a way that I would be embarrassed if Jesus were to come back right now. I don't want to think, I have a few years to get it right. Right now, I want to live in a way that if he comes back, so you were the wise and sensible. So you were the one doing what I'd asked you to do. Just let me, let me take a, a small aside here. Uh, this kind of argument kind of sat weirdly with me. I don't know if it does with you or not. And I wondered, is, it, is a, being afraid of being caught an acceptable motivation for doing something good? Right? So at first, it kind of, uh, I don't know, I should just do good because I'm good, not because I'm afraid of being caught as a bad person. Jesus doesn't seem afraid to use it as our motivation. But I do, I wrestle with it, and I will tell you that in the last few years, I've become, begun to wrestle with it far less because I've seen how effective it is. I tell you, first off, I do think that being afraid of being caught is only a motivation if I am respectful or fearful of the person who might catch me, right? So it implies that I do love or at least respect the person who might catch me. But beyond that, I've, I've seen that sometimes you and I, people, are weak to the degree that just self-discipline doesn't get us through, and we need accountability. We need somebody to know our dirt to the degree that I'm embarrassed for them to know, so I'm not going to do it. And I've really seen this in the area of pornography. When guys come to me who are addicted to pornography, one of the strategies that we've begun to, that I believe is most effective, is there's a program, a website, or I don't exactly know. It, it works with all of your computer and devices, your phone. It's called X3Watch. 
And what it does is it sends a report to every website you visit, and it emails every other week every website you visited to up to four different people. Right? They recommend send it to, God send it to your wife, send it to a friend, send it to a pastor, send it to your mom, somebody that you would be humiliated for them to find this out. And what happens is you find out sometimes my own goodness isn't enough, but my fear of being embarrassed will keep me from doing what I, sh- I don't want to do in the first place. My, the, the knowledge that if I click on this link, my wife will know. I can't click on it then. That website, I think, is great. We had a professor at seminary who said he decided to get just one computer in his house, and he put it right in the kitchen facing out so that you could not ever be on the computer without other people in the family being around. Because he says the presence of other people is an important accountability in our lives. We need to live with a degree of openness that the fear of being caught will be a real and present fear that will preserve us from doing things that we don't want to do. Jesus does not seem afraid to use the fear of being caught to prevent us from going down paths we really don't want to go down. And so I'm not afraid either. When a guy asks me, what should I do to kick this habit? Put yourself in a position to get caught. Put yourself in a place where if I click one more time on this link, somebody's going to know. Guys, I always say, give your wife every password to your computer so that she can log on at any time without having to get permission from you ahead of time, and she can check the history, your browsing history. If you know that your wife might catch you, you won't do it. And, and that's, it's that same motivation that Jesus is getting at here. You know that at any time, you don't know when, but at any time, Jesus may return. It could happen while we're here, right? While I'm speaking, Jesus could come back right now. And he says, knowing that Jesus might come right now, don't do anything that you would be embarrassed for him to see. When he comes, do not have to come up with an excuse of, I thought I had another week. I thought I had a few more years. Be ready now. Don't wait. Because if he comes back now, he will catch you. And that will be humiliating to meet the king in the condition that we just talked about. To meet the king and to say, but I'm fighting a pornography addiction. To meet the king and to say, but I'm not being faithful with my wife. To meet the king and to say, I've been lying about something silly like my taxes or my whatever. Something... If you're, the king is on his way back and you want to say, I was faithful, let that motivate you. There's a second parable that talks about us being ready for this surprise visit, and that's the beginning of 25. Uh, after this parable, we're going to have some more that will tell us about how to be, get ready. But this one is just going to remind us that it's important to be ready, and the reason it's important is because you only get one shot. I think that's the point of the parable of the ten virgins. If you're not ready now, you can't get ready after the fact. That's why there's these ten women, ten girls, and they all want to go to the same place. They all want to go to this wedding party. 
And so all 10 of them come out, and they're waiting for this guy who's going to go to the wedding party and invite them in, and they'll be able to celebrate the wedding and enjoy the feast and have the food, and they'll, they'll just be able to party at the wedding. And they all want to be there. So they all show up. And they've all bought these lamps. Now, the lamps are the, probably the cultural thing that's a little weird for us. Uh, women would go to these parties and bring lamps, and then they would line up, and the bride and groom would walk from the bride's house to the groom's house at the end of the wedding, going through this path of lamps. And it, it's similar to how we throw rice today. The difference is, when I go to a wedding, I expect the family to bring rice for me to throw. They had to bring their own lamps. Right? If, you're coming to my, if you're coming to eat my food and drink our wine, then you're bringing your own lamp and your own oil. So you, if you want to get in, you had to be ready. And so they show up, and they're waiting to go, and the groom's delayed. He's been socializing or doing whatever he's done. And they thought he was going to be there at 6. He wasn't there at 6. He wasn't there at 7. After a while, they get sleepy. They fall asleep. That doesn't seem to be a big deal. The groom's not there when they expected. The problem is, as around midnight, you get this call. The groom is here. The groom is here. Five women had their oil and their lamps. They were ready to go. The other five didn't. They said, well, can we use yours? Can we get in on your account? And they said, no. You guys go get your own oil. We're getting into this party. And so they left. They had to go get some oil. In the meantime, the guy takes the five in that were ready, and they get into the party. The door's shut. The party starts. The wedding's happening. And then the five girls who didn't have the oil come back. Hey, hey, we're sorry. We're late. Can we get in? The door's shut. Sorry, I don't know you. You weren't ready. And there's no chance of getting in now. It's too late. And Jesus says, you do not know when the master is coming, so be ready now. There is no second chance. There is no, can I get in on the second, can I slide through the door, can I get some special favors here? There's none. Be ready now and you get in and enjoy the party. If you're not ready now, then you will never get a chance to make up for that. And Jesus said, that should that should make you afraid. That should make you think, I'm getting ready today. There is uh, a song that I love. It's called Come You Sinners. I don't know if you've heard the song. I think it's related enough that it gives me a good chance to, to quote the song to you. Not to sing it, but to quote it. I'm going to do three of the verses, so you'll have to listen for a while. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus right now is ready, standing to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is willing, willing, doubt no more. And it says, come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. And then it says this, if you tarry, if you wait... Until you're better, you will never come at all. If you decide right now, I, I just I have to wait until, I, until this happens, right? and until I've had this experience or until I've mopped up this area of my life, you will have never mopped up enough areas of your life to make Jesus satisfied with you. You have never had enough experiences that now you're ready for the great experience. of the, Come now. 
Because if you don't come now, it says you will never come at all. Jesus didn't come for the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to fill your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. Um, Jesus says, or, or Peter says, today is the day of salvation. I, I think it's entirely possible that there are people in this room who know that Jesus is coming back and have said foolish things. Like, I remember saying when I was 15, I want him to come back, but not until I get my driver's license. Right? That there's something I want to happen first, as if driving my 85 Buick Century would somehow top heaven. He said, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Don't wait. Don't wait. Today. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus could come tonight. Could come tomorrow. If he does, are you ready? Do you know 100% what you would say if Jesus says, I have come for all who are in my kingdom. And he asks you, are you in my kingdom? You would say, I want to be. But how? How can you know for sure tonight that if Jesus came, you would be ushered into him as a good and faithful, in with him as a good and faithful servant? The answer was in that song we sang. It's not by getting, the getting ready is not by mopping up your life. The getting ready that we're asking you to do, that Jesus is asking you to prepare for, is not to make sure that you have a cleaned up life. If that was the getting ready, none of us would ever be able to be ready enough. Right? The getting ready that Jesus is calling us for is to admit, he is my king. I have no hope outside of him. I love the ends of each of these verses. He is able. He is able. It says it's not the righteous. Jesus came to call sinners. That's why it's not our fitness that he requires. The, all the fitness, all the rightness that he requires is to feel your need of him. And all above that, he will give you. All the righteousness you need, he'll give that to you freely. But you have to receive it, and today is the day. Don't wait. I think there's some other applications. The first application I think just jumps out at me is I don't want to go home from here thinking maybe tomorrow I'll address my relationship with God. If you haven't addressed it today, you do that tonight. You do it now. You don't wait. There's some other applications that just seem to jump out to me, and that is that it may be that my friends and family don't have maybe any more time, maybe not much more time, maybe that I have waited to address something with them that I should not be waiting on. And I thought, ah, I'm just going to wait till it kind of comes up in conversation. Maybe it's time for me to bring it up in conversation. Maybe it's time for me to directly say, do you know Christ? To be bold. To recognize that their future is not guaranteed. And so I'm not going to wait for me and I'm not going to wait for them. And then I think a third application, one that we've already kind of hit, and I just want to revisit. If it's true that Jesus could come tonight, and Jesus says it is, 
Am I living in a way that I would be embarrassed for him to come? If it's true that I could see Jesus tomorrow, am I living my life today so that he would say, well done, good and faithful servant? He says, if you don't, you run the risk of being embarrassed or possibly even proven as a fraud and thrown in with the hypocrites. That today, knowing that Jesus could come at any point, today I need to live as if he could be here and I am living to be excited to see him. I told you when we started, I think it's an easy passage to understand. I really do. I think that Jesus is saying, I'm coming and you better be ready. And being ready means living like I'll be here tomorrow. And most of us really understand how to do that. In my heart, just to be frank, it's very, very easy to become complacent thinking that tomorrow will be just like today and the day after that will be just like this day and that therefore what I'm doing isn't that big of a deal. It is very easy for me to be lazy. What we talked about this morning is very easy to distract for distractions, small things to become big things because I don't think that maybe the king will be here tonight. And Jesus says, root that out of your heart and out of your thinking. Live like he could be here at any minute. Let me pray. Dear Lord, as we prepare to respond to you in singing and in prayer, and I just pray that you will take this text and root it deep in our hearts. Help us see clearly the areas in which we become complacent, not living ready for your return. If there are people we need to talk to, give us the boldness to talk to them. If there are sins we need to confess, give us the courage to confess. Help us to be people who don't wait, but who act now to do what you have called us to do. Pray this in your name. Amen.